And I invite you to open your Bible to the book of Mark. We are in chapter 9 of Mark's Gospel. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 14. Mark 9, verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately... All the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And Jesus answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the Spirit saw him, the evil spirit, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if You can do anything. Have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand And lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the powerful word of the living God. May it confront today our unbelief 
and help us to trust him more. Raphael Sanzio de Urbino. Like all big timers, he just goes by one name, Raphael. The great painter and architect of the high renaissance is works, dozens and dozens of them are considered masterpieces. His very final work in the period of time before he died, his apprentices, understudies, would finish the, the edges and the corners of this great painting, which hangs now in Vatican City. And it's that painting that hung above his bed in its nearly finished form as he breathed his last, and it's that painting that was the object of international intrigue and, and scandal and war as Napoleon uh, fought with the Roman church about where this painting should go, uh, to Paris, back to Rome, to Paris, to Rome. There's a, a whole story of where this final painting of the master Raphael would land eventually now in the Vatican you can go and visit it today. And if you went to see his final painting of the transfiguration, the scene that precedes the scene that we just read, Mark chapter 9, recorded by the Synoptic Gospel writers, always in connection with this story, if you were to look at Raphael's masterpiece, you would be drawn to, at first, the light and depiction of glory at the top half of the painting. Jesus, gleaming white, as all the gospel writers said, his face shining like the sun. And two other figures reflecting that same light emanating from Jesus Moses and Elijah in conversation with this exalted Christ, the, the veil of humanity lifted momentarily so that this bright shining light would show to the three disciples that accompanied Jesus to the top of the mountain by his invitation would behold the very glory of God in the person of Jesus. His deity revealed momentarily and these three disciples uh, would be in the painting and in the story flat on their faces around this scene of unrivaled radiance, intense glow. Peter, James, and John cowering before this scene. But what makes that painting a masterpiece isn't its unique depiction of the glory of Christ in paint. It's the bottom half of that painting. The bottom half of that painting is the scene down below. The scene we just read 
and it's a dark scene, the top of the painting, light, glory, transfiguration, Jesus and Moses and Elijah shining like the sun, the disciples stunned before them, but at the bottom of the painting, depicting the the scene of the other disciples, the nine left behind, are in a fierce argument with the religious leaders of the day. Eyes are are glaring in anger, mouths open with arguments and and obvious yelling being depicted in this, this darkened scene at the bottom. And in the middle of this chaotic, dark argument between disciples and religious leaders is a young boy, rigid, and eyes rolled back into his head, kind of falling as he had so many times before into his father's arms. Raphael depicted the transfiguration, the revelation of the glory of Christ alongside of the scene that would follow at the bottom of the mountain. And Matthew and Mark and Luke all do the same. And so if we're to understand this healing story, this deliverance story, combined with the contention between the disciples and the religious leaders and Jesus' indictment of the entire generation in verse 19 of being faithless, it has to be understood in light of what we just saw last week when we studied the beginning of Mark chapter 9, the transfiguration of Jesus, the revelation of his glory. This story of this poor suffering boy and his father begging Jesus for compassion and help is tied to the first story of Jesus's revelation as the glory of God emanates from him and he fellowships with the great lawgiver Moses and the prophet Elijah. The story must be considered in light of the glorious brightness that precedes it And as we enter into the darkness of this scene of suffering, this is not just another miracle of Jesus. By my count, this is healing number maybe 12 or 13 in the Gospel of Mark. And there'll only be a couple more. The second half of Mark, which we're in now, remember, Mark only has 16 chapters And so as we've entered into the second half of of Mark's account of the ministry of Jesus and his defense of why Jesus died on a cross, why that was a necessity, we get towards the second half and we won't hear any more miracle stories except a handful. And the arrangement, as I've told you throughout, is so intentional, so careful, so thoughtful, so composed. Just as we saw the The preceding miracles of Jesus healing a blind man at Bethsaida in chapter 8 and Jesus healing a a deaf man near the Sea of Galilee in chapter 7. Jesus 
and Mark use these parables to illustrate a condition that goes beyond the physical maladies that these individuals were suffering to show that there's a kind of spiritual deafness, a kind of spiritual blindness that is marking not only Jesus' own disciples, but the entire nation of Israel. It's explaining that this confounding reality, why couldn't God's people receive their Savior, receive their Messiah? And the answer that Mark gives is that this generation was deaf to the truth of Jesus as Savior and Messiah and blind to his glorious reality. That metaphoric healing, that parabolic kind of healing is is book-ending our section that we're in and, and will be given to us by way of another illustration of spiritual blindness when Jesus heals Bartimaeus, blind Bartimaeus at the end of Mark chapter 10. And that one as well is underlining and emphasizing that the disciples have not yet come to terms with the reality that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so as Jesus has been pressing his disciples on the necessity of his coming suffering and death and eventual resurrection, truth that they cannot and will not accept or comprehend, he illustrates it in these healing miracles of sight and and of hearing and seeing being exposed to show that it is of most importance and significance that those who would consider following Jesus would understand who he is on his terms rather than on their own, that their expectations would be right and grounded in the reality of why Jesus came. Because he came to die. He came to suffer in our place and for our sins. And so in this account of a boy who suffered extraordinarily and his his parents, his family, who had witnessed this horrific circumstance his entire life. There is an ordinary scene of, of healing, one of the final healings that Jesus does, one of the final miracles that Jesus will do in the Gospel of Mark before he turns towards, moving towards the Passion Week and the cross in just a, a few paragraphs, really. This One of the last miracles on display from Mark is intending to show us something. To show us something about its relationship to the glory of Jesus on that mountain, having just come down from that experience, and showing us something about our need to understand where Jesus is going from this point on, which is to the cross and to suffer. This healing narrative is trying to teach us something 
beyond the mere fact of the power and authority of Jesus who is already sufficiently demonstrated that he's greater than the evil one, that he has power over the devil and his minions. He's shown that over and over again by casting out demons, by delivering the man possessed by a legion of them in Mark chapter 6, by repeatedly rebuking them and silencing them and confronting them and showing his superiority over the forces of darkness. That's been adequately demonstrated. This particular healing, this exorcism, this deliverance is intending to teach something to Jesus' disciples. It's why they have a private audience with him at the end of the story in the house. And it's why Mark has arranged it in such a way, along with all the synoptic writers, to show us that to understand what Jesus is teaching us, we need to think about this in light of the glory of Christ and in light of his careful instruction and the way that he delivers this young kid from this demon. This is an exorcism that's a sermon, a sermon on unbelief, a sermon on faith, a sermon on growing faith, a sermon on how faith and only faith can connect us through Christ to God. So if you have ever wondered what faith is all about, how it works. If you've ever struggled to, use a different word, trust God in difficult circumstance. If you've had a hard time believing or if you've felt like your belief has fallen short, your trust has disappointed you, Your faith has been meager and anemic and small. That the degrees of your belief and trust have been slight and that you desire your faith to be strong and to grow and to be grounded and to be sound and to be proven. Then this incident is for you just as it was for Jesus' disciples. It's a story about how we should respond to the glory of Christ and what faith looks like in light of who Jesus really is. And that's where we begin. I'll draw three lessons as we travel through. The first is faith responds to revelation. Faith responds to revelation. We need to start with this mountaintop experience. Peter knew it was something worth savoring. He had that part right. He did not have right that Jesus should be seen in equal standing with Moses and Elijah. Three tents, three tabernacles as recommended by Peter, as Jesus is transfigured before the disciples, was blasphemous. So much so that God himself interrupted the scene, filled it with a cloud of glory, and spoke 
as a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son, chapter 9, verse 7, listen to him. And with vision clarified, the disciples then, no longer in a cloud of glory, Moses is no longer there, Elijah is no longer there, but Jesus alone is there, and their eyes are fixed on him. As Jesus teaches them on their way down from the mountain of the necessity of John the Baptist's ministry, who's someone who is Elijah-like because Jesus has been portrayed as as Moses-like in that story. I, I told you a little bit about that last week. There's more connections here if you're interested in in Jesus being Moses-like. The author of Hebrews insists on that reality in his early chapters that Jesus is greater than Moses, that Moses was the most respected, most admired, most uh, sought after uh, of all the forefathers of, of Israel's faith and life. Moses was seen if not alongside Abraham, maybe even above Abraham as the one who mediated the law to the people of God, who connected the people of Israel to their God. And for for Moses to be prominently figured in Old Testament history and for Jesus to now appear Moses-like in this scene, the disciples are starting to put that together. They see that like Moses went up to Mount Sinai and and receive the glory of God and receive the law of God, Jesus has gone up the mountain and Jesus was not the recipient of the glory of God, but the source of the glory of God. So in that way, Jesus is greater than Moses. Even the timeline of six days is a connection with Moses in verse two. We looked at those things last week, but now as they come down the mountain and start to think about all that Jesus has said about rising from the dead, about suffering, Jesus is teaching them that if Elijah had to be treated with contempt, so much more Jesus, this Moses-like figure, will be rejected and despised. And so they come down having this incredible experience, having seen the glory of Jesus and received the affirmation of the voice of God And they come down the mountain to this dark scene and it couldn't be any different. They've been given revelation from God and now they're in the ordinary muck of life. Verse 14, when they came to the disciples, this is the other nine. Three got to go on the field trip, nine got left behind. They saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. What a mess. Remember, the disciples have already been sent out on various mission trips. It wouldn't have been that unusual that Jesus takes a few disciples off with him to a place to pray or to uh, take care of of something in the Messianic agenda. Uh, But as Jesus returns, just as the the disciples had returned to him after their commissioning in in, uh, prior chapter, Jesus finds them in a state of confusion. Again, very Moses-like. And I, maybe I'm pushing the Moses connection too much, but I think the Bible, if, if I do, the Bible pushes it too much too, Hebrews 3. So Moses came off the mountain, and what did he find? Whoredom. Yeah, I knew you were going to say whoredom. Uh, a bad scene, right? Israel is full-blown idolatry. 
It's, it's a mess of immorality. And similarly, Jesus comes from the mountaintop having shown the glory of God, not, not shining the glory of God like Moses was in a reflective way. And they see this great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. The disciples are going toe-to-toe with the religious leaders, which has got to not be going that well because that's a better job for Jesus. He asks questions, he silences them, he confounds them constantly. The disciples are trying to argue with these religious teachers and the context that these three disciples had no idea what was going on are, is, is everything. So the crowd in verse 15 has been looking for Jesus and all they're getting is these little followers of Jesus who are coming up short. And they run up and greet him. And then in these words, they were greatly amazed. That's an important word in Mark. This is an underlined version of that word in Greek. Uh, Some commentators think Jesus still had some kind of Shekinah afterglow going on, like Moses did when he came off the mountain. I don't know if that's the case. It doesn't say that. But there's something about the return of Jesus from the top of the mountain that makes the crowd extra excited. And maybe it's the fact that he was missing and the disciples were insufficient. But the crowd rushes Jesus right away and he hears all the contention and the fighting and he asks, what are you arguing about with them? And it seems to be a question asked to to both sides, both to disciples and to scribes. The one who answers is from the crowd And he's a father with great need. He says, teacher, I brought my son to you, individual, singular you in Greek, not to these clowns. And he has a spirit that makes him mute. And so this this boy is deaf and mute. But he's aware that there's something beyond the physical going on in this particular case. There's something supernatural happening. And the depiction in verse 18 to our modern ears sounds like epilepsy. And I think it is like epilepsy. But it's not merely epilepsy. It's something demonic. And the description of what happens to this young man, the seizure, the throwing him down, the foaming at the mouth, the grinding of his teeth, and the stiffness that follows, as well as as talking about how long it's been like this in verse 21, ever since childhood, it's almost killed him a number of times. And the man says, so I asked your disciples to cast it out, verse 18, and they were not able. And Jesus' response to this man and to this scene after revealing his glory to those three disciples, after conversing with the lawgiver and the prophet, Moses and Elijah, after hearing the voice of his father, affirming that he is the beloved son of God, worth listening to, Jesus' answer can only be described as one of holy frustration. Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. 
Jesus' words orient us to the significance of the miracle we're about to see. It's a miracle about belief. He calls the generation of Israel faithless, unbelieving. This is not the first time Jesus has used this word. In Mark, in chapter 6, Jesus marveled at their unbelief. He thought unbelief was something so extraordinary, so wondrous, so shocking that he marveled at it. And here it's on display, not just in the crowd, but in the entire generation of Messiah rejectors. Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? In a holy manifestation of anger, of sorrow, of marveling at unbelief, Jesus indicts them for failing to trust God, failing to believe God. And this teaches us something about the nature of faith. Faith, remember number one, responds to revelation. Faith is not blind. Faith is not irrational. When the Bible presents faith, it's always in response to God's word and God's work. Faith doesn't come out of nowhere. Faith isn't out of thin air. Faith isn't irrational. Faith is a response to the revelation of God. And Jesus is the revelation of God and has proven over and over again that not only is he from God and represents the work of God and the will of God, but he is God. And at least three of these disciples have seen it. All of these disciples have heard the confession of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of Man, that divine title. Jesus' divinity has been on display, and now it is the responsibility of all who have heard and seen his authority, his miracle-working power, his claims, his, his divine manifestation. It is their responsibility to respond to that with faith, to trust, to believe. This is repeatedly what Jesus tells his disciples in places like John 16, verse 8, when he says, And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness, the Holy Spirit and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Jesus entreats his disciples to believe in him. Verse Chapter 14, verse 29 of John. And now I've told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. Repeatedly, Jesus calls his disciples to believe in him, to trust in him, to agree with him, to respond to the revelation of who he is, that he's the only way to God, John 14, 
6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And, and how do you come to the Father? Philip asks him, Lord, show us the Father. That would be enough for us. And Jesus says, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that they say to you do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, John 14, 12, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do, because I am going to the Father. Whenever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. The priority and power of belief, of faith, of trust is always in response to the revelation of who God is. God isn't asking you to believe in out of thin air, out of nothing. He has shown you who he is in creation in the law written in your heart and your conscience, and in the, the word of the prophets through the centuries, and then finally and fully in the divine manifestation of his Son incarnate. Jesus is the final word from God, and it is the responsibility of all who encounter him to believe in him. That's why unbelief is something that is more common in the Christian-touched world rather than in some kind of dark pagan island. Unbelief is a rejection of divine revelation, and that's why Jesus is indicting this, this generation. It's why he's marveling at their unbelief. It's why he calls them to believe. Faith is a response to revelation. And so Jesus' exclamation of frustration, of faithless generation, of how much longer he'll be with them, is then followed by his request to have the boy brought to him. And when demons encounter Jesus, they often would cry out, speak to him directly through the host person, uh, we'd seen that in Mark chapter 6. In this case, the same thing happens in that the evil spirit sees Jesus and then attacks the boy, causing him to convulse, fall on the ground, rolling about, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asks the father a very seemingly clinical question, right? Sounds like something the doctor would say. How long has this been going on? But when Jesus asks, it's not because he lacks information. He's trying to show his disciples and remind this father of just how intractable this situation is. This isn't something that happened 10 days ago. This is something that's been going on not for months. This is something this family's been dealing with for years. It's chronic. It's intractable. So difficult. The father elaborates in verse 22. It's often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. And then the man's desperate prayer, a plea that I find so moving. 
he says to Jesus, as his boy is flopping on the ground, but if you can do anything. Two words. Have compassion on us and help us. He knows what he needs. And that is so key to prayer. When you talk to Jesus, it's good to know what you need. It's good to bring your request to him. And this man is, is crystal clear in that. He's not sure that Jesus can help him. I mean, he came to Jesus for help, so he thinks he might be able to help him or, or help a little or help some. Or, uh, but when he came, Jesus wasn't there. The disciples tried some, I don't know, techniques. And then the scribes got into it with the disciples saying, well, did you try this technique? And then Jesus shows up and the man's faith is, is partial, it's, it's immature, it's shaken, it's, it's there, but it's weak. And so he just, he just asks for two things. Can you have compassion on us? Can you, can you feel what we're feeling? And can you give us some help or assistance? There's three things there. If you can do anything, have compassion, and can you help us? And Jesus picks up on the first thing because the first thing will take care of these other things. But I think it's good to note that Jesus does have compassion. He understands. He sympathizes. And dear friends, he can help. Oh, can he help? Both Jesus' compassion and his assistance are second to Jesus' ability, if you are able. And so Jesus picks up on that and sounds somewhat offended when he exclaims, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Again, faith responds to revelation. Jesus has just manifested his glory. He has been healing multitudes. There is 12 individual healings so far recorded. That doesn't count the times that Jesus has stayed up all night healing thousands upon thousands of suffering people. Jesus has shown his ability. He's shown his connection to God. He's shown his commitment to the messianic mission. He has put it all out there. And so he tells the man, it is not a, manner, a matter of ability or power. If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And here's where understanding the responsive nature of faith is so important because false teaching has muddied our understanding of faith in this world today because TV preachers say in reading a story like this, well, you need more faith. 
they have misunderstood what it means for faith to grow. And that's the second point I wanna help you understand about faith. Faith responds to revelation. Second, faith can grow and doubt can be overcome. And so Jesus has told the man, all things are possible for one who believes. This is not a statement about the power of faith in faith. This isn't a, a statement about like positivity. There's still people walking around the world today who say, well, you know, if you believed, you know, you could shrink your tumor with, with kind of the, the thinking about it. You gotta be positive. You gotta actualize and visualize faith in self, faith in positivity, faith in faith. That is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is showing him that faith can grow as faith gets a clearer view of its object. Some of you aren't from California. I was born in a place called South Dakota. You, you may not know that about me because I, I, I hail from New Mexico. That's my roots. I had a, uh, an origin story in South Dakota. We'll explore it in, in, in a film upcoming. But... <laughs> In, in the Dakotas, as they call them, there's something there called ice. You get it in your drink at In-N-Out here. In a place like South Dakota, it's everywhere. There's ice everywhere. And winter is not, you know, five minutes where it's cold at night like it is here. It's actually an icy hell it's very bad. And in South Dakota, you can go, North Dakota, I live there too. It's an origin story, not get into it. I used to fight crime. Um, <laughs> you can do something called ice fishing or play hockey or build an igloo. And it's that deep, deep coldness that causes that ice to be Solid, so that Dakota people drive their trucks out onto a lake because the ice is feet thick. And if the ice isn't thick enough, they don't drive out onto the water because the truck will go in and you'll die. They, my dad has this in his garage in New Mexico, things that he carried with him all the years. This gigantic tool this big metal iron rod thing, all part of the origin story, that we used to slam into the ice to break a hole to fish through. And you would slam this tool into the ice as hard as you could, and not for a moment did you think that the ice wouldn't hold you. It took all the strength of a grown man and a wee superhero to break through this ice hole to fish. Ice and its sureness helps us think about what trust is like. Having confidence that that ice is thick enough is something that came from experience. 
came from assessing how, how cold it is outside. When it's negative 10, the ice is going to be thick. And when it's been below zero for weeks and weeks, the ice is going to be even thicker. When Jesus tells the man, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes, the reason the man and you can have certainty that Jesus is able is because he's proven it over and over again. Because it's not based on the, the quality of your faith, the, even the quantity of your faith, but the object of your faith. Now that's not to say that faith cannot grow or that doubt can be overcome because faith can grow and doubt can be overcome. And that's why this is a story of personal trust in this man. And he speaks it so beautifully and so well in verse 24 when he immediately cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus told his disciples in Matthew that if they have faith the size of a mustard seed, they could move a mountain. That wasn't a David Blaine thing. It wasn't about some internal trick that they could channel. It was about confidence in God. The, the object of your faith is how your faith can grow. Doubt in this world, especially with uh, young, uh, former Christians, ex-evangelicals, deconstructionists, deconversionists, doubt is a badge of honor. Uh, Jude 22 uh, rebukes doubt as, as sin. Doubt needs to be something that needs to be dealt with, that needs to be confronted by faith, and faith needs to be built and supplemented and strengthened by looking more closely at the one in who we believe. It's a good place to say, I believe. And it's a good place to grow to say, help my unbelief. And there's areas in our lives where we need to trust more, we need to believe more, and the key to that is not examining the faith that you have, but looking at the object of your faith, Jesus, who he is and what he's done. That will convince you to trust more, to believe more, to entrust your soul to a faithful creator, to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he's got you, that he'll hold you, that he'll see you through, that you will make it because your faith is in him. I don't do a ton of funerals, but I've, I've done, I mean, I've done a bunch of funerals, but I do a lot of weddings because my people are more wedding age. But I've done some funerals. I did a funeral 10 years ago for a lady in the choir at our church. And I always, I always do the same kind of thing when I meet with the family. I say, did she or he have a, a favorite verse? And then I want either to kind of include that verse or preach on that verse at their funeral. And at this dear lady's funeral, her husband told me she'd suffered uh, for a while and then gone to be with the Lord. He told me that this verse, 
Verse 24 of Mark 9 was his wife's favorite verse, her life verse. I believe, help my unbelief. I'll never forget that service because I'm just thinking about this lady's testimony being fulfilled at her death. You see, it's at the moment of death that unbelief is completely overcome. But you don't have to wait until you die. You can grow in your belief now by looking at Jesus and listening to Jesus and seeking his compassion and help and assistance. And so Jesus sees the crowd is now growing bigger, verse 25, and so he takes care of the problem, rebukes the unclean spirit, saying, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him, never enter him again. And then there's a a crying out, one last convulsion. The spirit leaves the boy, and the boy apparently drops dead. And the crowd says, Jesus killed him. But Jesus, in that same scene, like Jairus' daughter a few chapters back, same verbs, took by the hand, lifted up, And he arose. Lots of commentators see glimpses of the resurrection there. You see, the issue was not Jesus' ability, but a willingness to respond in faith because everything is possible for one who believes because the belief is in the work and power of Jesus. Responding in faith, overcoming doubt, battling unbelief depends on seeing the power of God in Jesus as the object of our faith so that even a mustard sized seed faith can grow to know that God can do great things. The hindrance to faith's success is not its measured quantity, it's the trust that the the truster, the, the faith that the one who needs to believe has in God's work. And so as you put your trust in Jesus, though it's wavering and though it's small, and you speak like this man, I believe, help my unbelief, you're saying, My feelings are wavering. My sureness is wavering, but I recognize that I believe. In your humanity, you're weak. In your emotions, you're you're insufficient. But this cry in and of itself, this prayer in and of itself is an expression of faith. It's a request for greater faith, greater sight, greater ability to trust in God instead of in ourselves. And that's the essence of true faith, responding to the word and work of God. One commentator writes this, the accumulation of the vocabulary of death and resurrection in verses 25 to 27, and the parallelism with the narrative of the raising of Jairus' daughter suggests that Mark wished to allude to a death and resurrection. The dethroning of Satan is always a reversal of death and an affirmation of life. Another similarly says, Mark's miracle stories point to the Christ event as the whole and communicate resurrection faith. You see, these disciples are being asked, this father is being asked to trust Jesus in this circumstance because a time is coming when Jesus' enemies will murder him and nail him to a cross and throw him in a grave. 
and the occasion for their trust will be amplified. To know that the one who took this boy by the hand and cast the demons out of him and raised him up will raise himself up by the power of God when he is lying dead. A final lesson, faith connects us to God. Faith responds to revelation. Faith can grow and doubt can be overcome. And finally, faith connects us to God. Jesus takes his disciples into the house and they ask him a question that seems disconnected. Well, he gives an answer that seems disconnected. Their question is very connected. Why could we not cast it out? What did we do wrong? Was it a formula thing? Was it an incantation thing? What, what, what did we do wrong? And Jesus says to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. It's an interesting statement, isn't it? Some have tried to make this like a, a species, a genus and species of demon that require special you know, Pentecostal prayer to get out. But remember this story, according to Jesus, four times so far has talked about faith or the lack thereof. And so why does he conclude with a lesson about prayer? The problem is, is the disciples didn't pray. The problem is, is the disciples had cast demons out before and now Jesus is gone and they thought we can do it again. But they don't realize that they need Jesus. They need God's power. And so self-reliance and self-dependence caused them to fire blanks. They couldn't fix this situation because this situation required Christ. And the way that they could be connected to God, connected to Christ, was through prayer. That's the connection between Jesus' statement about this required prayer and the, the lack of faith in the generation and the helping the man's belief. All of these lessons about faith are pointing us that the key to our faith is not in ourselves but in him. Faith is the issue in Jesus' indictment of the generation of unbelief in his compassionate discussion with the Father whose faith needs to grow and with his disciples as he's preparing them for ministry without him as he will ascend on high. They need to understand his prayer is more than just talking to God. It's acknowledging our total and complete dependence on the power of God to meet all our needs and to strengthen our faith. The disciples needed more of their connection to Jesus, more of this connection to God. They have no power on their own. It is only by prayer, which prayer simply is an expression of faith. Faith connects us to God. And without that prayer of faith, we have no power to participate in what God is doing. Jesus showed his supremacy on the mountain. And if you expect to know the supreme power and work of Jesus, the only way you can do that in this life is by being connected to him in prayer. 
The people expected a prophet who was Moses-like, Deuteronomy 18.15. But the bad thing is they got one who was greater than Moses and they treated him like they treated Moses. They complained about him, they rejected him, they rebelled against him. But unlike Moses, these people actually killed Christ. Instead of looking to the one who could save them, looking to the one who could give them that power, that could connect them to God, that could reveal their need of his supreme power, they continued on in their unbelief. And so the scene was set. Divine glory up above, darkness, confusion, and unbelief down below. But through it, Jesus saves this young kid and has compassion and help for this family and instructs his disciples that they need to start trusting him now because days are coming where their need for faith and prayer will be even greater. Is that helpful to you? To know that your faith can grow and your doubt can be overcome. That like a a cord that connects equipment to power, prayer connects you to God and to his power. And that your faith can grow as you respond to Jesus' work in the Bible, his words in the Bible, and his work in your life. Father, thank you for the supremacy of Jesus on display. Like the disciples, we often try and fail because we look to ourselves instead of looking to you. Help us, God, to hold on in our minds to the glory of Christ, to trust his word and lean and depend on him and him alone. As we follow as his disciples, help us to trust the one we're following, that he knows the way forward, that no circumstance in our life, no difficulty, no trial can take away our joy if we are connected to God by Jesus in faith. So help us, God, to trust, to gain assurance, and to grow in that trust as we rely on you. In Jesus' name and power, amen.